Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Shades of Grey. Today, our special guest is Paulo Narciso, a dear friend of mine and a VP at AARP Foundation. He's a social entrepreneurship advocate, a technologist with over 36 years leading companies in education, financial services, technology, and government sectors, both here and abroad. And he's passionate about changing the world with leadership and technology. We are so delighted to have him today. Welcome, Paulo. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. So can you tell us a little bit about your work in ARP Foundation, what you guys have done for the last few years, and what's your plans for the future? Sure. ARP Foundation, um, as you know, is um, one of the largest um, public charities in the United States. The mission of the foundation is to be able to serve the vulnerable people 50 plus um, by creating and advancing effective solutions to help them secure the essentials specifically focus on economic security and social connectedness. Our goal is to uh, envision and develop solutions um, that will eliminate the senior poverty here in the United States. Now, over the last couple of years, we have um, obviously been developing new solutions uh, to be able to effectively uh, end senior poverty. And we've done that across four different, what we call impact areas. Um, and that's the impact areas of housing security, food security, social isolation, of course, and then um, lastly, income security, which I think is uh, pertinent for this particular show. And the goal is to develop these new solutions that are scalable in the marketplace um, that can, in fact, serve the needs of the vulnerable 50 plus um, population here in the U.S. So can you walk us through what are some of the challenges that you see in driving solutions for financial inclusion because a lot of times when we talk about financial inclusion people immediately think about you know african countries developing countries emerging economies right ones that are not um in the formal financial system if you will be it of their status and what have you so what are some of the challenges specifically that you see in the u.s and what are some of the differences that you see outside of the U.S. as well? Because I know you have pretty amazing um, background experiences outside of, of the States. Yeah, the U.S. is a very, very challenging environment um, for financial inclusion innovation, specifically for the lower income, older American. Um, we hear about the problems of um, financial security and financial health that recently uh, we've seen from CFSI, for instance, that only 28% of Americans are financially healthy. That's across all Americans, not just the uh, low-income 50-plus. And the low-income 50-plus, it's a much smaller number. And then you've heard from, you've heard from the Fed uh, specifically around um, how most Americans don't have $400 to be able to meet an unexpected expense. Um, and that's been a measure of financial health um, for the longest time. Um, so those are challenges that the low-income 50-plus people face, and that they face it even in a much more broader and much more dire um, um, uh, consequence or different scenarios. Um, one is, for instance, that um, we think about financial inclusion simply as an issue of, of uh, banking and whether or not people have a bank account. It's much broader than that in terms of how a, a vulnerable American can access um, the financial markets and the financial products that allow them to be fully engaged in 
the economy of the United States, but also in being able to build their own personal financial health, um, specifically as they age. In the United States, we also have the problem with retirement. And we've heard all about the looming retirement kind of crisis on the horizon where most people have not saved enough for retirement. In fact, only about 25% of the U.S. population on average has $250,000 or more saved up for retirement. That's the top very small percentage of, of, of Americans. The bulk and majority of Americans won't have anywhere close to that from a retirement savings um, perspective. And then you couple that with the issues that we have with debt. Um, and uh, we have you know, the, it's a significant opportunity to be able to find innovation or to innovate um, that allows the low income 50 plus um, population to be able to um, build, in fact, their financial health and, and uh, avoid these particular crises. To put that in scale, there's roughly about 50 million people that are considered low income 50 plus. That's a lot of people. It's larger than the millennial population. And the 50-plus low-income population is growing um, by about 10,000 people every single day. So um, uh, it's a, um, a large area to be able to innovate around financial inclusion. Uh, Paolo, uh, you've served as uh, the Jack Welch Professor of Entrepreneurship, and you've had um, uh, you've worked as a uh, chief technology officer in several startups. So one question for you is how much of uh, uh, leveraging of technology will be needed to uh, to make sure there are new business models that are created to serve the aged population? So I think technology is going to be the key to be able to scale. Um, the solutions in the past um, have been very high touch. And there's nothing wrong with high touch programs. Um, but high-touch programs become very expensive, um, and the opportunity that we have now with technology is, in fact, that particular ability to be able to put market pressures and to be able to get a scale at very, very large numbers. When I mentioned 50 million people that are low-income 50-plus, um, that's a huge chunk of population that we can't approach in the traditional ways of um, either doing charity or, or, or doing business. So technology is very much a key uh, in being able to reach that population, accelerate it, and be able to um, find uh, particular solutions for, uh, for that uh, population. So you mentioned a little bit earlier that, you know, a lot of them, they have very little amount saved up for retirement, right? And a lot of these folks are low-income folks that you're focusing on. What do you think are some of the um, levers that you can pull, if you will, to help them save more, to help them address some of the retirement challenges, if you will, or, or even some of the more basic day-to-day -day, um, needs that they have? Where do you see some of the most... Um, some of the best opportunities lie in terms of if there are entrepreneurs coming into the space, they say, you know, hey, I hear about what you guys are doing and I'm interested to help. What, do, what can they do? Yeah, fantastic question. So there actually are five key financial health challenges facing the LMI older Americans. Um, the first challenge is that emergencies don't actually age discriminate, right? 51% um, mm -hmm. of the low income 50 plus 
are struggling with insufficient short-term emergency savings. So when something happens, whether it's a car breaks down or um, you know there's a medical emergency, uh, they don't have the money to be able to um, uh, to to handle that particular situation without having to sell something or without having to borrow um, uh, money. The second challenge is the debt dilemma. Um, we have roughly about 39% of the low-income 50 plus have debt that actually isn't manageable. And it's it's interesting that it's not just not manageable, but it's a very different debt than people who are not low-income 50 plus. The non-low-income 50 plus have debt like student loans, which are obviously a big challenge, as well as um, mortgages, for instance, um, and uh, are, are kind of the two big areas of debt that they have. The, the low-income 50 plus the debt portfolio is totally different. It's mostly credit card debt, payday loans, and debt to for medical expenses. So we have a significant debt dilemma. Um, the third challenge is um, low-income 50-plus aren't act actually adequately protected from medical shocks. Um, and that then results in, in more consequences to their financial health. And then there's the retirement struggle, as I talked about, where they aren't even able to retire. Um, and those who stop working will still have difficulty with their financial health and being able to pay their bills. And then lastly, couple that with um, the family obligations. Many of the low-income 50 plus are what we call sandwich generations. They care for people that are older than them, their parents, for instance, as caregivers. And they also care for children um, in their teenagers or even younger. Um, and that will impact them in both positive and negative ways. So when you look at kind of the financial solutions around that from an innovation um, standpoint, I think there's a ton of um, opportunities for us. Um, so one, for instance, in the uh, banking or credit unions uh, kind of uh, approach is there are saving tools that um, might be very helpful for this particular population. We have been experimenting with those here at ARP Foundation. In fact, launched uh, a recent tool called My Savings Jar that uh, just launched in, uh, in November that is in fact not only a savings tool, but is also a financial management tool for households or families um, to be able to help them be able to kind of manage their particular expenses and to level those out. There's also opportunities from a technology perspective around debt repayment or even next dollar planning services. For FinTech, there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunity as you talked about um, one of the key pieces being technology. There's the gamification of some of these savings, savings tools. There's ways to be able to um, help with bill payment and expense navigation. Um, there's also ways to be able to automate financial planning tool, tools that are oriented specifically for retirement. And then lastly, for the nonprofit sector, which obviously I work in as well, where we, we are trying to incorporate all of these particular tools and, and work with different institutions to be able to do that. But there are areas where a nonprofit can help around credit counseling, for instance, and even tools to be able to help navigate benefits and government services, uh, as well as caregiving responsibility tools to be able to help a low-income 50-plus and kind of manage all of those financial challenges that they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's lots of opportunity for uh, innovation and for fintech innovation specifically. Next question I have for you, Paolo, is um, you've had 36 years of experience doing this, been there, done that. Um, if you had an option to go back in time, uh, what would you do differently uh, to kind of, uh, I mean, uh, to kind of eradicate 
poverty for uh, for the 50 plus? I think there's a lot of things we, we can do. And, you know, 36 years ago, a lot of the technology uh, solutions weren't available for us, right? Um, a lot of the payment options, um, the, the fintech and insurtech options that are available now are just not available. Some of the things I would consider, though, are more behavioral and ultra-cultural changes. Um, from a behavioral perspective, we are um, view the world as consumers, right, and how much we consume is a reflection in how much wealth we are, how much wealth we have. Um, it's a totally different mindset than um, a person who saves and a person who plans for the future. Um, and I think what would be important 36 years ago is, which I think would also be important now is, in many cases, people don't see a role model or a roadmap around how to live a really rich, textured, financially healthy life, um, given the specific um, constraints of their job or their communities they live in, the income they, they receive and so forth. We're, we're always been told to consume and then we obviously uh, um, take on a lot of debt. So it's changing that mindset. Um, if we could have done that 36 years ago, that would have been great. But I still think there's opportunities to be able to do that um, today. And then the second thing that would be important is plan for these particular expenses that are going to happen in retirement. And we, we talk a lot about retirement savings, and it's interesting how many millennials are not actually participating in 401k plans today. Um, and that is obviously going to be a challenge. And we see also that millennials are incurring a tremendous amount of, of debt. The only difference today is that my generation or the generation ahead of me we're at the end of the cliff. So we're the ones that are falling off the cliff, right? The generations that are behind me are marching towards the same cliff as well. Um, and in many cases, it's just kind of understanding how we are able to actually plan for those particular shocks to our financial health. Um, preparing for, since for caregiving expenses and preparing for medical expenses that we'll incur at a much later um, part of our life. We never hear about that when we're in college, right? We we think we'll live forever. We'll never get sick. Um, and sure enough, when we're 50s and 60s, now we start getting sick and we realize that we did not prepare for that um, adequately uh, well. So I would look at that from both a, a mindset perspective around, you know, how do we actually live within our means and do that in a very rich way um, in our communities? And the second of all is how do we plan better um, and, and, you know, I wish there were tools that, um, and messaging that allowed us to do that 36 years ago. And, and that's probably where I would, uh, I would like to, you know, kind of take back the last 36 years and, and be more preventative than what we're doing now, which is uh, very reactive to, um, the actual crisis that we're facing. I actually want to follow up on that because you mentioned something that that's intriguing. That's been bugging me for a while. When we talk about, when we look at the current demographic, right, you know, be it the millennial generation or be it the, the Gen Xers or the boomers, um, well, actually, let's leave boomers aside. There are no lack of tools, if you will, right? If you look at the FinTech market, PMF tools, they're everywhere. But do you think our current financial um, circumstances, if you will. Do you think it's, it's more because of the lack of tool or is it because of that of lack of education, if you will? Or you touched upon, you know, the fact that a lot of times caregivers don't plan ahead financially, right? And, 
and there has been multiple surveys that that support that viewpoint is we don't we don't see it coming until a crisis hits us and we're like oh my god but we should have known we should have known so what can we actually do right in the ecosystem be it someone who's listening um, you know, be it, you know, someone from a bank or a fintech entrepreneur, someone from, from a charity, a foundation, should they look at, you know, uh, financial literacy education or better tools or what, what can they look at? Because that's something I struggle with too. Yes. So um, I do believe there's still a lack of tools available. And, and, and if I look at the older generation, there's certainly a lack of tools around a person that is older with a different set of challenges. Than, than a millennial, I, uh, from a millennial perspective, or even earlier generations than mine. You know, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, um, but you know, generations um, behind me. Uh, it's now we see all of these new tools that are coming um, in the marketplace, and I think there's a great tools. A lot of the auto savings tools are fantastic. Um, I think there's uh, tools that are being incorporated into the workplace around sidecar savings, for instance, that allow you to save for unexpected expenses as well as for uh, long-term retirement are uh, we're, we're starting to see that where I think we are missing the point is the customer journey itself and the customer experience and really being able to focus on how do we get people to adopt these particular tools and what are the barriers to that specific adoption and how could we potentially address these particular barriers by developing different customer experiences for them. I'll give you an example specifically around um, kind of banking and the way we you know, have our own relationships today. Um, you know, in the past, it was a husband and wife and the finances were completely shared and everybody can see what everyone was spending on the, at least hopefully, in, um, in the checkbook. And you know, as you looked at your financial statements, Today, um, people potentially don't get married, um, the younger generation, and so, but however, live together and share expenses um, and uh, the tools that are out there don't necessarily address that, but if they do address it, they're not designed to be able to um, adopt for that particular uh, persona and that, that particular uh, use case. So I think... The focus is not just on tools today and the technology, which are which I think are great and are accelerating and it's, and it's fantastic um, and very much needed, but a focus specifically on the customer themselves and how they might be able to interact um, with that tool. Now on the education side, um, it's obviously very important and we should start financial education much sooner. And there are studies done by Rand Corporation and others that say that if we actually um, did financial literacy at a much earlier age, the likelihood of them being financially healthy as they age is actually significantly better. Um, it's not quite what we do at the Foundation with Experience Corps, where we help people at third grade literacy. Um, and we there's a specific correlation between helping people read at the third grade level when they are in third grade to their incarceration rates when they are older. And then we don't have a specifically that correlation when it comes to financial literacy, but we do see trends where if we teach them financial literacy earlier, um, then, and that literacy in the curriculum is designed that to be um, in tune with, you know, today's environment and the tools that are available today, then we should be able to hopefully see that improvement 
you know, down the line. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a combination, not just of technology, but on looking at the customer experience and how do you develop those better um, for the people who are using them and in conjunction with uh, the uh, messaging that we have to do around both literacy, literacy and also mindset and culture, right? Um, not overspending, um, not looking for the next pair of Air Jordans when they first come out, um, and to be able to have that restraint, to know what it takes to be able to, you know, not really need to be satisfied today and, and to see what those rewards are in the long term. That's a that's a great point you touched upon, Paolo, on the, on the cultural aspect of it, because um, I originally come from India. So when I started my career, I was my first uh, first salary was two hundred dollars a month and I would still save hundred dollars a month in that money. Um, so um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a cultural um, aspect there. But uh, do you see um, uh, a culture being a barrier? Um, and when I landed here in the UK, I found the issue of uh, uh, where people often took credit for granted in many ways. Um, I, I was I used to be shocked at the number of people in the UK living in overdrafts. So I just is it a cultural thing that actually helps or um, or or actually goes the other way around with with uh, financial responsibility? Yeah, no, I, I too believe it's cultural. I mean, I originally come from the Philippines, and the mindsets are also very different in terms of how much you save. As you know, in a lot of Asian cultures. Um, uh, they save a lot of money, uh, and you, you obviously with with South Asian cultures, we do the same thing. Obviously, from from your particular experience, when we move into more Western cultures, it then becomes really a culture of consumption, right? Um, and uh, and that has to change um, because it's again how we target the particular consumer and their particular experiences and the messages that we deliver to them that turns them into a saver, into a pure consumer. Um, and a consumer necessarily is not where you want to be when you are you know, much older. So I do believe it's, it's absolutely cultural. And there's anthropological evidence for that as well. Um, you know, in the olden days, um, you know, the way you showed your wealth was how many, I'll use goats as an example, is how many goats you had or how many cows you had in your herd. Um, the more cows you had, the more goats you had, People could all see that, and you were very, very wealthy. Today, a lot of our wealth is hidden because it's digital, right? We don't know how many, how much money people have in savings account. We don't know how many, how you know what their credit scores are. We don't know um, what their credit worthiness is, or how much credit card um, spend or availability or debt that they particularly had. It's all hidden, um, and the only way to show your wealth today is by spending. You know, I, I buy a new car. And it's a nice car and people think, oh, he must be wealthy because he bought a new car. So that mindset and the culture definitely plays a, a big role in that. Um, and uh, I think it's a message that gets lost and something that we can certainly learn in more Western cultures and certainly here in the States where I am um, that gets lost quite a bit. Really, really cool about doing all the work is if you look at the three of us, right? I was born and raised in Hong Kong. You were from the Philippines and Arun was from India. And yet the three of us, we're talking a common language and trying to address a common issue that and challenge that we all face, which is aging, which is something that does not discriminate. So 
serenit beautiful thing about technology and beautiful thing about humanity. So with that, thank you so much, Paolo, for joining us today. And um, we will be back with you all for the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you. Thank you, my friends.